What's going on, everyone? Welcome to the program. It is Not Your Average Boston Sports Podcast. I am your host, Garrett Hayden. As always, you can listen to us on Spotify and Apple Podcasts, and you can follow our social pages on Twitter and on Facebook. So we'd like to welcome everyone to the show. Uh, before we get going, though, would like to say a quick thank you to uh, Sean Montgomery for coming on guest Friday last week. It was a really fun conversation uh, talking about Bruins playoff hockey. Um, you know, obviously, as we had recorded that on Thursday, a lot has changed, um, you know, with the Bruins, but also with the rest of the NHL playoffs, but also um, or just a, a fun time to talk to Sean, you know, talking about hockey. Um, so if you haven't listened to that, you can go ahead and listen to that. Just know that it is a little dated, but it was a great conversation. I had a couple of interruptions during our interview, but I was able to uh, to edit those out. So that's the good thing. Um, so I think speaking of um, hockey and the Bruins, that's where we're going to start today with the Bruins uh, evening their first round series with the Hurricanes yesterday afternoon, a 5-2 win at the Garden and the series now goes to Raleigh in Game 5 tomorrow night. Um, and, you know, amazingly, the uh, the Bruins are back in this series. You know, it's really, you know, interesting how much can change in the span of two games. You know, and I think that there were definitely a lot of things that went wrong for the Bruins in the first two games. You know, it really seemed like things just snowballed. You know, when you watched how quickly those first two games changed when Carolina, you know, would get goal after goal and, you know, the Bruins seemingly are playing catch up. Um, so I think, you know, it's tough to find any positives in the Bruins game after the first two games. And obviously, you know, when we're, if you're, if you end up listening to last week's guest Friday with Sean Montgomery, you know, the things that we talked about were, you know, a lot of what happened in games one and two. And, you know, not that we were down on the team, but I think it was clear that the Bruins were, you know, kind of at a disadvantage against a team like Carolina that, you know, makes things really difficult for road teams. You know, the way that they play, how aggressively they forecheck. And, you know, it just seemed like the Bruins were on their heels for the majority of those first two games. But, you know, it's pretty amazing how quickly the series has changed. The Bruins getting a huge win in Game 3, 4-2, um, to two, you know, giving up the first goal, which they did again yesterday, but being able to battle back and, you know, take the lead, take control of the game, and, you know, really give you a feeling that, okay, this series is not, this series is not over. You know, I think you come into Game 3 and you are, thinking that, yes, the Bruins absolutely need to have this game if they're going to have any chance of coming back in the series. And it just was great to see a couple power play goals. You know, the power play really worked to perfection um, in that game three. You know, you had a shorthanded goal, which really changed the, really seemed to kind of change the energy at TD Garden. You know, when you look at the way that Jake DeBrusque was able to you know, make the play and think with kind of an offensive mindset. You know, I think often on the penalty kill and, 
you know, typically that's what you do on the penalty kill is when you get the puck, you clear it. You know, you don't really want to hang on to the puck too long. But I think that he had a great aggressive mindset that I'm going to steal this puck, I'm going to take it, and I'm going to see if I can create a chance. And that's what he did. You know, he finds Coyle for the tying goal, and that was a huge goal in that game. Because I think if the Bruins go into the room, you know, down a goal again, and kind of having this, oh, here we go again mentality that, okay, you know, Carolina, it's they're going to get some goals and it's going to snowball again. Um, but that was a huge goal in that series. And then the Bruins obviously, you know, found a bit of a rhythm offensively. Penalty kill, you know, Marchand found the back of the net. Um, and it just was a game that you felt really good. Uh, and then obviously, you know, morning of, of uh, game four, you know, the Bruins find out that, McAvoy is not going to be available, you know, and I think that that was definitely kind of a, a downer that, you know, it kind of was this feeling that, okay, you know, great, you're back in the series, you have a chance to tie the series, and then you get that news, and you're like, oh man, like, can anything go right, you know, for this Bruins team, um, but I think that the Bruins had to readjust, and they did, and they thought they did really, really well, you know, Josh Brown, who drew in yesterday, didn't play a perfect game, but I think you you were able to put him in the lineup and he was able to make a little bit of an impact. You know, he's not someone that at the full at the full health of the defense corps, you know, he's not going to be playing, but I thought that he did a solid job. Um, I think, you know, the other defenseman that drew in, Mike Riley, for um, Hampus Lindholm, I thought he played excellent um, in the last two games with the Bruins. You know, I think staying within themselves, um, for the defensemen especially, that was a big reason why they won yesterday because, you know, it's easy to see that, okay, you lose Charlie McAvoy, who is your best defender, you know, does so much for you defensively from a physicality standpoint, from a positioning standpoint, you know, to a skating standpoint. He gives you so much. And he can jump into the play offensively. And so there probably was a worry that, okay, how are we going to, you know, replace this? But I think, I'll be honest, the Bruins defense core kind of went into a, a Belichick type of mode that, you know, each one of them did their job and they didn't try to do anything that was out of character. You know, all six defensemen played the, played the way that they are expected to play. You know, no one went out of their way to try to, you know, do too much. And I think that was a big reason why you were able to win yesterday because, you know, you had a player like Connor Clifton who, I'll be honest, I've been very critical of him almost all season, but, you know, he is showing you an ability to be a great, you know, energetic defenseman who knows when to be physical, but knows when to, you know, jump up into the play. You know, he's really had a really, he's had a very strong series, had a very good last two games, because I think that he's played within himself. He understands that, okay, this is what my skill set is. You know, I'm not going to try to do too much. And I think that that was kind of the big key yesterday is all six of the defensemen played the way that is expected of them. You know, they didn't do anything unexpected in a bad way. So that was a big part of why the Bruins were able to win, but also, you know, the Bruins were great on the power play. You know, not every single power play was great. You know, they had nine power play opportunities. I think they scored on three. But I think, you know, you've seen the power play kind of get back into a rhythm 
and kind of start being a weapon, which you didn't really see at the end of the regular season when they were, you know, mired in that 0 for 39 slump or whatever it was. But I think now the power play is becoming a problem. And, um, you know, Carolina took a lot of bad penalties yesterday. And I think that, you know, if you really want to look further into it, you know, the Bruins might be in their head a little bit. You know, if you look at some of the penalties that they took yesterday, you know, maybe not all of them are, you know, retaliatory or stupid penalties, but there were at least two of them yesterday that just were flat out dumb, you know, and whether they were a decision by the coaching staff to challenge the potential, you know, goal by Jake or the challenge to goal call um, for Jake DeBrusque for goalie interference, you know, if it was... <laughs> If it was Tony D'Angelo, you know, getting a stick up high in Lazar's face or, you know, Ajo getting the high stick up in Bergeron's face that, you know, left him bleeding. You know, it just was like you maybe started to see a little bit of doubt in Carolina's game, which I think was the biggest thing for if the Bruins could get back into the series. You know, could they plant the seed of doubt in Carolina that they're thinking, oh, here we go again. The Bruins caught their tempo and they're going to beat us again. And so I think... If you can do that, you know, you kind of have an upper hand here. Um, and I think that was clear that, you know, Marshan kind of got after Tony D'Angelo. He kind of got in his head. And I think, you know, if you can get, if you can get a player as important as D'Angelo is to that team, you know, you can kind of, you can kind of creep in and you can kind of let doubt creep in and, you know, get them off their game, get them to take emotional penalties, which is, you know, exactly what happened with D'Angelo yesterday. And then gets him so upset that he, you know, throws his stick at Marshan when he scores the empty netter. And it's like, you know, okay, you know, that is exactly what you don't want to see if you're a Hurricanes fan. You know, you don't want to see one of your most important players, you know, kind of losing his head. And I'll be honest, you know, that's one of the drawbacks of signing someone like that, that they can lose their head. You know, I'll be honest, I wouldn't have signed him for a bunch of different reasons, but, you know, you do what you do, you know, you're going to do what you're going to do. You can, you know, make your bed with those types of players. But I think the Bruins have done an excellent job of, you know, staying the course, not reacting to losing the first two on the road, you know, not reacting negatively to losing McAvoy before game four. You know, he probably doesn't play game five, you know, I think unless he tests out of uh, the protocols, which I believe is two negative tests within 24 hours. So, you know, in all likelihood, he probably is not going to be available for game five because I believe there's, you know, a five-day quarantine uh, protocol, which I believe it's five days um, unless you test out of it with two negative tests in 24 hours. So, you know, we'll see on that. We'll kind of get back to McAvoy and the defense a little bit later, but just a tremendous effort by the Bruins in games three and four. Um, and I will also say, you know, the Bruins coming back to the Garden for game three, you know, there were a lot of lineup changes that went into effect, and I think that for the most part they've worked. You know, I think the most important one was putting Jeremy Swayman in that, and I think that he's been solid. You know, he's not had a game yet where you're like, okay, he stole this game. He was unbelievable, but he's been solid. You know, he's made some huge saves. He's made some really timely saves. Um, made one yesterday on Seth Jarvis's rebound. 
which I thought really was the most important save of the game. You know, Jarvis gets an opportunity on the four-on-four, four, kind of goes backhand, gets a rebound, and Swain's able to stick his pad out uh, to make the save. And I thought that was the biggest save of the game. And so I think, you know, he's not been unbelievable, but he's been solid. And I think the Bruins definitely made the right decision. And it's like, honestly, you're down two games to none. You're going home. And I think the Bruins made it clear that, you know, both of the goalies are going to play in the playoffs. And so I know that some people might say that it was a hard decision because people didn't feel like Allmark was necessarily bad in the first two games. But I think when you make a change like that, you look to kind of shift the momentum a little bit to try to be like, okay, can we get a new goalie in there? Can we kind of kickstart our team? And to be perfectly honest, it kind of did that. You know, I think the addition of Chris Wagner, who, again, at the beginning of the playoffs, I was kind of not really sure about his ability. Um, he was tremendous in the first two games, or the, la or the, the last two games in Boston. Um, just physical presence, getting in there, you know, I think is given some more jump to that fourth line. And I think they've been a really effective unit in this play in these playoffs. Um, and so I really like the addition of him into the lineup. You know, Frederick, I think some people were upset with, but I think I understand. You know, I think that as much as you saw Carolina kind of come apart yesterday with some bad penalties, you know, that's where Frederick has kind of hurt the Bruins at times this year. You know, that he's taken emotional penalties that have, you know, changed the course of the series. And so I think that was kind of why you saw him come out of the lineup. I know that there were some people that, you know, maybe weren't sure about putting the top line back together. But, you know, clearly it's worked with how well they've played. Um, I guess I'm just going to be curious to see going forward if the Bruins do return to the line to the lines that they had you know at the end of the season you know going into Carolina did they move Pasternak back um, but I guess I wouldn't be surprised if the Bruins just ride with this forward group you know until they need to break them apart you know they lose game five and they need to make a decision but I think based on the way that you have played offensively you've been able to kind of kick start your offense and a number of guys are playing really well offensively in this series. So I don't think that anything changes for game five in terms of the forwards. You know, I think you just kind of want to stick with what's been working the last two games. Uh, it's going to be very curious to see though, if the Bruins do, you know, switch those lines up for game five, as we kind of shift towards looking uh, to Tuesday night for the next game. You know, I think one of the advantages of the Bruins being home is, you know, when you're the home team, you get last change. So basically what that means is, you know, after a whistle, um, whether puck goes out of play or a goalie ties the puck up or whatever, the home team has an opportunity to, you know, change their lines to match what the opposing team has on the ice. And so I think, you know, for example, in the first two games, you know, you saw how well the Jordan Stahl line, Nino Niederreiter, Jesper Faust, you saw how well the three of them were able to kind of shut down the top line, the Bergeron line. And then when the series shifted to Boston, you know, the Bruins were, you know, kind of able to keep the keep their top line away from that line um, and kind of give them a better matchup. So I think, you know, you return to game five 
where you return to Carolina for Game 5, do the Bruins mix up their lines again, you know, to try to avoid that particular line? You know, do they move Pasternak back to the second line so that they can, you know, avoid him having to play against a heavier line like that? So I think that's one of the curious things to see for Game 5. If the Bruins do, you know, stick with what's been working, they stick with that top line, you know, with all your top guns, or do they kind of reassess? So I think that's one of the keys that I'm curious to see, you know, with the Bruins, I think, again, you know, you keep riding what's, what's been working. And I think that means that you play Swayman, you know, you play him again, game five, I think that you kind of keep playing him until he loses. Um, and I kind of think it's the same thing with the fourth line, you know, with a player like Chris Wagner and, you know, Nosek, who I think got a little bit of heat for the first two games in Carolina but I thought that he played pretty well in Boston and, you know, wasn't exactly getting a lot of scoring opportunities, but I think he did a pretty good job defensively. So I think, you know, he probably stays in the lineup. Wagner probably stays um, in the lineup. Um, and then, you know, be curious to see what Carolina does in goal for game five, because I don't think, you know, Ronta has been all that bad, but, you know, he has played, you know, he's played okay in this series, but I think the Bruins were kind of able to get to him a little bit. You know, if you look at the way that they scored a couple goals, they were kind of, you know, grime, grimy goals where they kind of were throwing their stick in in the crease. You know, Dabrowski obviously had that goal that was able to stand, which I think was the right call. You know, I don't think Dabrowski really, really limited uh, Ranta's ability to play the puck. Or, or play his position, so to speak. And I think, you know, again, if the rule book says that if the puck's loose, which it was, you know, it's kind of, it's incidental contact, it's kind of fair game, you know, not to the point that you can, you know, shove a goalie over necessarily, but I think you look at the contact that DeBrusque had with his pad, they kind of view, the rules kind of view that as, as incidental. So, you know, I don't have an issue with those goals standing, but I think that that's kind of something to keep your eye on. For Carolina, you know, do they stick with Ranta? Do they go back to the goalie, to the uh, rookie goalie, Kuchekov? Um, very curious to see what they do in that situation. Um, but I think the biggest thing for the Bruins, get a lead. You know, try to get the lead for the first time in this series. It's pretty remarkable. Carolina scored the first goal in each of the first four games. But I think if the Bruins can get an early goal, you know, even better if it's a power play goal you know, you can kind of continue to plant or to kind of grow that seeded out in their game that Carolina's like, okay, you know, the Bruins have kind of caught their tempo. You know, we're not really prepared for this. Make them chase the game because I think they're obviously, you know, very dangerous with how effective their forecheck is. But I think if you can get a lead, you can maintain it, you can extend it, you can kind of start to, you know, the doubt can start to creep in. You know, they can start to, squeeze their sticks a little too much. They can start, you know, doing things out of character. So I think an early lead is really important for the Bruins in game five. Uh, and, I'm, you know, obviously as we kind of look a little further into the defense groupings, you know, again, I thought that the, the six defensemen played really, really well in game three or game four without McAvoy. You know, I think that McAvoy likely doesn't play game five. You know, I think unless something crazy happens and he's able to, 
you know, test out of it. But I think, you know, the NHL, the, the new COVID protocols are like, they only test players if they show symptoms or report symptoms. So, you know, you got to think that Charlie was probably showing symptoms, you know, probably is positive, obviously. I probably shouldn't speculate too much, but I think, you know, you got to go into game five, assuming that he's not going to be there. And I think, you know, can the Bruins get a decent, another decent game from Josh Brown? You know, I'm not really sure, but I think, you know, with the news that Hampus Lindholm is skating and uh, later today, the Bruins do have a uh, practice. So definitely keep your eye on that if uh, Lindholm is going to be there and playing. You know, I think the biggest thing for him, if he goes through a practice, make sure that there are no residual effects, you know, from the upper body injury that he, that he suffered. But I think, you know, if he does draw back in, you know, it makes a huge difference for the Bruins. You know, I would be very curious to see what that potential lineup would look like if, if Hampus does or is able to, to draw back in. Um, but I think, you know, obviously what he does, he kind of, you know, is able to kind of take the load off some of the other defensemen. He can play heavy minutes. You know what he can do from an offensive standpoint. Um, but I think, again, the Bruins want to be very careful that they don't rush him. You know, they don't put him back into playoff hockey without going through all the precautions uh, to make sure that he is ready to go. So, you know, that will be something to keep your eye on. You know, McAvoy probably not available for game five, maybe for game six. You know, I think that that's a more realistic possibility for his return. You know, hopefully the Bruins can get a win in Carolina, you know, come back home with a chance to uh, to win the series. You know, I think that that would be really ideal for the Bruins. You know, it's funny, I was watching another playoff game yesterday. We'll talk more about the playoffs later, but I was thinking that uh, we've really not had too many overtime games um, in this postseason. Um, I think it's been one or two. So, you know, I hate to say it, you know, overtime hockey is obviously the, <laughs> it is like just the worst. It's the worst because the nerves are just off the charts. Um, but then it's also the best because they make for some of the best moments in, you know, sports fans' life. <laughs> so, um, but I think don't be surprised if we see overtime game. Um, in game five or possibly game six later on, um, because there will be a game six at the garden. We do know that. We just don't know if it's going to be an elimination game for the Bruins or the Hurricanes, but we'll find out. Um, but again, Bruins in a great spot, great uh, response to even a series in Boston. So speaking of the other Boston team that is in the playoffs, we'll move over to uh, talking about the Celtics, who uh, suffered a very, very frustrating loss. Uh, game three on Saturday afternoon to the Bucks. Uh, Celtics trail the best of seven series, two games to one. Game four is tonight in Milwaukee at 7.30. Big opportunity uh, for the Celtics here to uh, try to even the series, try to get back into it. Um, you know, I think that uh, a lot of things did not go the Celtics' way. In game three, you know, whether it was their control, you know, whether it was something they could control or not. But I think that the important thing is I wouldn't overreact to that game three loss. And I think that 
you know, you could clearly see that I think Jason Tatum was was not right in that game, you know, just wasn't able to make shots, you know, and I think that it happens, you know, and it happens to the best basketball players who have ever played this game. You know, they're like, they're all-time greats in the NBA that have gone through what Jason Tatum went through in game three. Like, it's going to happen. You're going to drop stinkers, you know, and I think that it's something that we as sports fans have to understand. We as Celtics fans have to understand that, you know, sometimes you just don't have it. You know, it was pretty clear that when you saw Jalen Brown, the way that he played in game one, he just didn't have it. Um, but he came back with a vengeance in game two and was a huge reason why I think the Celtics were able to maintain the lead in that game. You know, that he was able to be so reliable in the first half on offense that the Celtics were able to just kind of go with the flow and be able to play at a high level offensively. Um, you know, I feel like it's interesting. You notice games where the Celtics play well offensively. It almost always starts with someone like Jalen Brown going off for like 10 or 12 points in the first quarter, you know, to kind of get the team going, to kind of get the team, get the team's legs out from under them to get them into the game. And so I think, you know, look for Jason to have that type of quarter tonight um, that either he is scoring the ball or he's trying to get other guys involved. You know, that's the other thing. I think that that's the part of his game that has developed really well, that he's now, you know, trusting his teammates to make plays. And I think, you know, sometimes in the playoffs so far, he doesn't have the hot start scoring and making threes. But I think, you know, he has the ability to get other guys involved and, you know, get the offense going that way. So very curious to see how they come out of the gate in game four with scoring. And I think they kind of have to come out that way. You know, I think that you can't have one of those bad shooting nights. The Celtics have had two of them in this series, unfortunately. So I think it's just knocking down shots. And I know that that sounds very simple and very cut and dried, but that's kind of what it is. You know, the way that the Bucks play defense, the way that Budenholzer, you know, builds that Bucks defense is he kind of dares you to make three-pointers. And I think you're going to get open shots. You know, it's funny because you saw the shots that they made in game two. Those are the shots they were missing in game one. And it's like, you know, those shots are going to be there all game. And so I think that's um, the, the way to look at it, that I think you just got to knock down shots. And I think that you saw something in game four that, you know, talk a little bit more about in a few minutes, but I think you saw a couple of guys getting really comfortable with their shot making. And I think that that's really important. Um, you know, I think for the Celtics defensively, I think that they pretty much did as, as well as you could expect, you know, Giannis went off for 42 points and, you know, I think honestly, that might be the best game that he plays in this series. Um, and I think the Celtics just have to be like, okay, you know, he beat you, you know, you kind of tip your cap at how well that he played. Um, but I think the Celtics should feel comfortable and shouldn't feel, you know, discouraged with that defensive effort. I mean, again, you look at it very similar to the way that you looked at um, game one, that you looked at it like, okay, your defense didn't play bad. You only gave up 101 points. You know, your, your offense just couldn't make shots. I feel a very similar way to game three, you know, but the difference was the Celtics were able to get back into the game in the fourth quarter and almost win. 
you know, they took the lead with a, with a couple minutes left, and it was like, you know, they were not able to do that in the first game. They were not able to get back as close as they did and take the lead. You know, the Celtics obviously just couldn't get the stops needed late in the game, but, you know, the Bucks made some shots. They made some plays. You know, Marcus Smart had a chance. They had a chance to tie the game at the buzzer, you know, all the tip-ins. And it's like just is wild to think at how poorly Jason Tatum played, you know, how kind of out of sync they were in that third quarter. And they were still able to get back into the game and still have a chance to send the game to overtime off of a... <laughs> People don't understand how hard it is to intentionally miss a free throw. Um, and Marcus did a tremendous job getting that ball to hit the rim giving the Celtics, you know, two really kind of golden opportunities um, to tie the game. You know, if you look at Horford's tip-in, that was just an instant before the, or just an instant after the buzzer. You know, Marcus's shot that he had off of his rebound um, had a lot of chances, but I think this wasn't a game that you felt like, oh, the Celtics blew it. You know, that they blew chances to put the game away. You know, this was a game that the Bucks almost blew it, you know, blowing a... 13-point fourth-quarter lead, the Celtics almost came back to win. So, you know, that should make you feel fairly confident going into this game that the Celtics can fall behind, they can come back. But I think, obviously, for Game 4, you don't want to be falling behind by 13, 15 points. Um, you know, that's not something that you want to be, you know, tempting fate. So, I think going back to um, some of the guys making shots in Game 4, uh, Derek White, you know, I thought played a really good game. You know, this was the first time um, in a few weeks that I felt pretty confident with his offensive ability, you know, made some shots, went to the free throw line. You know, he attempted, I think, six or seven free throws in that game. And so I think that was a big plus to see him making some shots. You know, obviously, you would like your best guys, Jason Tatum, to make more shots. But I think that Derek did a tremendous job making some shots. You know, obviously his three-point shooting has been an issue, but he made a couple of them um, in game four. And I think, I think, you know, his confidence is huge. You know, it's one of the things that, you know, he was shooting very poorly and you start to be kind of worried about his confidence that is he turning down shots, which he kind of did in the early part of this series. But I think, you want him to keep shooting the ball. And I think that it will help his confidence even more to see, you know, shots go in the way that they did in game three. So I think, you know, he's a big part of your offense. You know, obviously he's not a guy that needs to score 15, 16, 17 points every single night. But I think that if he's able to knock down shots and he's able to be confident in his ability to score, it just makes the Celtics that much more dangerous. And it's not just about shooting, um, I think that it's creating for other guys, it's getting to the basket, it's, you know, drawing fouls, it's, you know, hitting those little runners that I think he's really good at, you know, you want to see him do that. And I think that that was one of the reasons why he got more confidence later in the game to shoot threes is because he was making those, you know, little run scoop shots, whatever you want to call them, or getting to the rim and making and and getting to the rim and getting fouled and shooting free throws. So I think that's something to watch for for the rest of the series, especially if the Celtics, you know, one of their star players has trouble shooting the ball. Um, I think that unfortunately, 
too much of a story um, after game three was the officiating. And I think that, look, on this podcast, I, you know, try not to... I try not to harp on the officiating too much because I do think that, in particular... This is a Celtics team that needs to kind of play through it and, you know, can't allow the officiating to become a big issue. You know, they can't let it get in their heads, and it kind of did in Game 3. You know, the Celtics had some moments where, you know, they're complaining and the play is still going on. Um, But I'll be honest, some of that complaining is kind of warranted with the way that Game 3 was called. Um, And so I think... The officiating being too much of a story, I think what I'm trying to say is, like, it just is, it's just frustrating the beginning of games when, you know, you see a Celtics player trying to kind of wall off Giannis the way that they were able to do in the first two games, you know, and then you see him kind of, you know, barrel into a Celtics opponent, whether it was Horford or whoever, you know, and the referees call a foul and kind of set a a precedent for, okay, this is how the game's going to be called. Um, and it just, I think, is is unfortunate when it goes that way because I think, you know, if the Celtics are playing consistent hard defense on Giannis the way they were in games one and two, like, you should be allowed to keep playing that way. And it just is like, I don't think the game should be officiated any different. You know, it shouldn't be like, oh, you know, different referees call it different ways, I guess. But it's like, then it's like, okay, it's a whole different game depending on who the officials are and the way that it's called. And I just think that that's not really, that's not good enough for me. And I think that I just, yeah, and I think that a lot of times you want the Celtics to play through it. I And I agree with that, but I just think that you can't have a call like in the first five minutes to be like, okay, this is how the game's going to be called. It should be called the same way every single game, you know, and I know that it's impossible to have officials, you know, officiating every single game. You can't have the same officials for every single game. It doesn't work like that, but it just seems like, you know, that shouldn't be a story. You know, you should be able to play defense the same way that you played defense earlier in the series, you know. Trying to wall off Giannis should not be called a foul if it wasn't called in the first two games, and it just is like, obviously there are some plays that I think that the Celtics kind of complain too much about, but you saw the way that Giannis was barreling into the Celtics. You know, there's, you know, it just is, it's just wild to me that, you know, what wasn't an offensive foul or what wasn't a defensive foul in the first two games is now a defensive foul. And it's almost like you can't play defense the way that you are accustomed to playing defense. It's like you have to, change the way that you play because of the officiating. And that's not right. Like, that's just simply not right. You know, you need to play, you need to be allowed to play the game the way that you want to play the game and not be dictated about whether something's a defensive foul or offensive foul or whatever. You know, and let me just say, and this is the last thing I'm going to say about the officiating. You know, Ime Doka obviously said after the game that, you know, the officials essentially told him that, you know, this Giannis is not being called for offensive fouls because the Celtics aren't falling down. You know, when you look at the way that Giannis kind of bodies guys up, you know, whether he's running them over or just kind of bumping into them, you know, 
the officials are basically saying, okay, that's not an offensive foul because the Celtics players aren't falling down. And it just is like the dangerous thing about saying something like that is it sets an awful precedent. It sets an awful precedent because it means that, okay, fine, then the Celtics are just going to be flopping around all over the floor in game four. If you're going to admit that, if you're, if you're going to have an NBA official admit that to a coach, you know, you are letting, you are opening up a Pandora's box. And I just think that that is embarrassing. Whoever told him that should be embarrassed and the NBA should suspend that official. And I'm not even joking. Like, I think you are essentially admitting that, you know, you're basically encouraging a team to, to flop. And I don't agree with flopping. Flopping's stupid. Like, you don't want to see that. But it's like, if you're going to make a statement like that, okay, fine. Then it's fair game. I just, like, the NBA should not be super happy about an official admitting that to a coach. So that's all I'm going to say. But I also think that, you know, this is a game that the Celtics have to have. You know, I think that uh, you really don't want to be going down three games to one. You know, you don't want to be losing back-to-back games for the first time in a while, you know, you don't want to be losing back-to-back games in the playoffs for the first time. You know, you don't want to be going down three games to one against this Bucks team. I think, you know, the Celtics just have to kind of stay calm, stay within themselves, and, you know, play team basketball the way that they've played it the last couple months. Um, and I think one of the biggest players, most important players for this next game is Al Horford. Um, he had a tremendous game three, had a had a double-double. I don't know if he had any, like, uh, block shots or anything. But either way, I think that he's a, a tremendous presence for the Celtics, and he's been a really good presence the entire season, you know, and being able to kind of keep the guys together when things didn't go very well. And I think, you know, looking at this game and how important it is, you want to look to kind of a veteran guy who's been through these types of battles you know, and been through these battles with this exact team. And so I think, not that the Celtics want to rely on him, but I think that, you know, he's one of the big reasons why the Celtics were able to stay alive in that game three and kind of keep the game close. You know, he just has this presence on the court that he's able to, you know, get shots, get kind of easy looks and easy baskets. And it kind of just gets the team going, just kind of calms them down. Um, I think that he and Jalen did a tremendous job down the stretch in game three for, you know, the, the easy looks that they got, the easy baskets that they got. And I'll be honest, the Bucks kind of let up defensively with the lead, which is kind of just what happens in the NBA. But, you know, I think you want to look to Horford to kind of be a guy who just connects the whole team and keeps the whole team together. So um, I think that he's going to have another good game. He's been a, he's been unbelievable, you know, in the playoffs and this whole season, you know, it's kind of hard to believe that, you had the Thunder just kind of wasting him last year. You know, and I understand to an extent about playing the younger players and getting them enough time, but it's pretty clear that Horford can still play and can play at a pretty high level. You know, it's almost like you're seeing him play that like he's, you know, 28, 29 and not 35. So, you know, he's been pretty tremendous uh, for the Celtics. So, you know, look for him to have another good game. Um, and hopefully the Celtics can even up the series and um, come back to the Garden with a Game 5 that's not an elimination game because uh, Giannis is a scary guy to play against in an elimination game. That's not something I want to deal with until at least 
a game six or a game seven. Um, so I'd be curious to see, you know, I think the Celtics need to get off to a good start offensively. You know, they really cannot afford to be chasing the game the way that they were late in, in game three. So, you know, I think it's going to be back and forth. I think it's going to be one of those games that's going to come down to the wire and it's which team can make the big play in clutch time or in crunch time. Um, and so I think that's really what's going to make the difference tonight. But I think the Celtics, they just need to get into an offensive rhythm. And if they can do that, I think that they should be fine. Um, so obviously game four later tonight, or later today, tonight at 7.30, um, the Milwaukee game is on TNT. So I think that that will do it for uh, talking about the Celtics. Uh, we're now going to get to another Boston team, and uh, it's not really as rosy uh, talking about this particular team. Um, the Red Sox are, uh, it's just uh, more of the same with this team, unfortunately. Um, you know, the offense is still just absent. The Red Sox have lost 14 out of 18, and it's, you know, a, you know, you really don't want to be saying that they've hit rock bottom this early in the season, but it might be, you know, and I think that I was one of those people that wasn't ready to, you know, say that things were horrible the way that they were playing maybe a couple of weeks ago. That it was like, oh, you know, it's early. The offense will pick up its legs. They'll be fine. You know, the one thing that I was kind of banking on was, okay, you know, the pitching has done a pretty decent job. You know, that I think they've done a good job of keeping the offense in games, giving them the ability to make big hits. And that's what I was kind of thinking. But then, you know, you have this horrible homestand in which the Red Sox lose their last five games you know, after having a good outing or a good win against the Angels um, to start the homestand and then the Red Sox lose four in a row or five in a row, excuse me, including all three to the White Sox um, this past weekend in which the offense just, you know, couldn't score. And I think that, you know, you are getting to a point and, you know, one could say that you're past the point for the offense to, you know, figure it out and get it going um, because... I think, you know, I don't really want to say you're running out of time with 29 games, you know, into the season. You know, that's not really typically a time where you're like ready to make a, you know, we're ready to make like a proclamation about what the team is, but it's like you're 29 games in and you've won 10. You know, there was a, there was a statistic the other day that this is like the earliest the Red Sox have lost 19 games in the four years that Cora has been manager. And it's like the other times were like, you know, 50 games in, 42 games in, 57 games in, you know, something like that. Like that was the game that they lost their 19th game. And it's like, you've lost your 19th game and your 29th game. And it's like, you know, you really, it's hard to compete. If you have that type of record, and I think honestly, like if we're looking at this team May 9th, a month into the season, you know, contending might not really be what's important right now. As crazy as that might sound, you know, I think like you just kind of have to get back to 500. You have to get back to respectability. You know, we can't be talking about playoffs and 90 win seasons if, you know, if they win 10 games in their first month, you know, it's just... 
you can't get to a point. You can't get to, you can't get worse than this. I think is like maybe the silver lining that like it really can't get worse than this, can it? You know, ten and nineteen after twenty nine games, it really can't get any worse. But it's like maybe it can, you know. And I think this is a point that it's critical. These next ten games are critical for the Red Sox, and that's not something you want to be saying before Memorial Day, you know. You don't want to be saying, oh, these are really important games for the rest of the season. But they kind of are. You know, I think that if the Red Sox don't win at least, you know, majority of their next 10 games, you know, you I really can't see this team being a contender. Um, and it's just is kind of shocking when you look at the way the offense has performed. You know, no one's really performed very well. You know, and even the guys like Devers and Bogarts, they've had their moments where they're where they've not performed. You know, they've not driven in guys with runners in scoring position, runners on base. And it's just like, I think that, you know, you have to just kind of stay with it. You know, and there was an interesting, it was like kind of a bit of the the game story in the Globe this morning about, you know, Kevin Polowiecki talking about the Mets team that he was on in 2015, that they, like the Red Sox, got out of the gate really, really slowly and... You know, this that team, you know, struggled for the majority of the year early on, but then they, you know, rallied, and that was the team that made the World Series. You know, the 2015 Mets made it all the way to the World Series. And, you know, not saying that this team is going to go to the World Series because it kind of looks the furthest thing from a World Series team right now, but I think the point that he was trying to make is, you know, I think, I think, it's, and I completely lost my train of thought, but I think, like, his general point was just, like, you know, you kind of just have to keep going, you kind of just have to keep grinding, and, you know, you have, you have no choice but to kind of keep going, that I think, you know, the Red Sox can sit and feel sorry for themselves, but at a certain point, they need to kind of go out and try to make things happen and it kind of it's not great that we have to you know say that oh they kind of have to force things to happen but you're kind of at that point so um i think you know again it's kind of just the same old story the offense you know no one's hitting and you know you're getting to a point where the season might be kind of slipping away you know you look at devers bogarts they're the only guys that are hitting you know trevor story's had a really hard time getting going you know, he's had a lot of strikeouts. They've piled up. You've seen a lot of frustration in his game, which is not, which is really not good. And it's definitely not good that, you know, he's hearing it from the fans. So I think, you know, this is kind of the, the danger zone of playing in Boston. You know, guys who sign big contracts, they sometimes don't live up to them. And I just think, like, it's still, I think, in my opinion, it's too early to make, you know, assumptions about him as a player and his future going forward to this team, but it's like the last thing you want to have is, you know, him showing frustration and the fans letting him hear it. So he's kind of got to pick it up. You know, you're not getting the offensive seasons that you got last year from Kike Hernandez. You know, he's failing to hit, you know, Verdugo has cooled off considerably since his hot start. And, you know, at this point, you know, Dahlbeck can't hit water if he fell out of a boat. You know, it's kind of getting to that point where, He's reverted back to exactly what he was in the first half of last season. 
that he couldn't hit anything, you know, and it's just like, you can't have that type of inconsistency, and the Red Sox are kind of, you know, risking it at first base for kind of the second year in a row that you're hoping that you get some offense, but you're not getting anything, you know, and I think that a lot of onus might fall on Jackie Bradley, but at the same time, he's not an offensive player. That's not why you brought him here, you know, so there are certain guys that need to hit, you know, for Dugo, Kike Hernandez, they need those guys to hit. They need Trevor Story to get going offensively. You know, it's like, you know, you, you just need it. You need offense. Um, and it's just like, you kind of don't want to keep harping on it, but it's the same issues. You know, for example, you look at these games that you played at Fenway, the last four games, zero runs, two runs, one run, two runs. Five runs in four games is not going to cut it. You know, you're losing series to the Baltimore Orioles. You're getting swept by the White Sox, who, like you, have had a really tough time out of the gate. And it's just, you know, I know on this podcast I try to be as positive as I can. And I think the positive silver lining in this is it's still early. You're in a lot of these games. You know, and that was another point that Kevin Ploiecki made, that, you know, they've been in a lot of these games. It's not like they're getting blown out 8 to nothing every single game. You know, you're in these games, you're in these low-scoring games, and, you know, it is kind of interesting that around Major League Baseball, scoring has been down this year, and I don't know if that's because of, you know, the baseballs or whatever it is, that's obviously not an excuse, but the good news is they've been in some of these games, and I think they just, they need that big hit, you know, they need that big hit to get the offense going, they need something to happen, and I think, you know... (laughs) The, the, the pitching is doing all it can, you know, and I think that for the most part, the rotation has been really solid. You know, you finally got Nick Pavetta to pitch a really good game the other day and the bullpen couldn't hold the lead. And it's just, you know, it's, it's frustrating that even Nick Pavetta, he comes out and, you know, deals for six innings and you can't get the win. You know, Evaldi's been pitching while well. they can't hold the, they can't hold games for him. And it's just, the, the rotation is just kind of doing all it can. You know, Rich Hill is pitching really well. I mean, he was going toe-to-toe with with, with Otani with Otani last weekend or whatever whatever game he pitched against them. I mean, it was Thursday. Um, but it's like, and, you know, maybe that's a bad example that, you know, Otani's probably the best pitcher in baseball. But, like, you know, that's really, it's... I think that the pitching, again, it's doing all it can, and, you know, you're getting good rotation pieces. You got decent rotation pieces in the offseason. Waka has honestly been their best pitcher. You know, Hill's been pretty good. I think Waka went on the injured list. He was supposed to pitch yesterday, but, you know, they're holding it together, and it's just this, like, you need the offense to score runs. It's really that simple. You know, it's just... It's not really going to get more cut and dry than that. So, you know, one of the other things that the bullpen, they've been struggling with holding leads, and they think that that's legitimate. They've wasted a couple good starts from starters, but at the same time, you know, if you're pitching, like, you know, let's use Saturday's game, for example. You know, Pavetta pitches six solid innings, first time really all season that he's pitched that well. You know, the bullpen has to hold a lead, and... You're holding a one nothing lead. You know, there's 
there's no literally no room for error you know and it's just like the offense can't keep doing this to the bullpen you know it's it's screwing them that it's like you're bringing them into one run like tie like one run low scoring games where it's like manufacturing runs is kind of the name of the game and you have you know teams that are doing that to the Red Sox and the Red Sox you know can't can't get into any rhythm offensively and it just it's frustrating that they keep blowing leads and I understand that but you know at a certain point you need your offense to help out you need your offense to give your bullpen some room for error you, know, you can't bring them in in one nothing game and you know, yeah, every time you bring in the bullpen, you expect them to hold the lead, and that's legitimate. But at the same time, if you're in a one nothing game, um, maybe score some more runs. You know, it's just, I don't know, it's more of a... It's it's more of kind of just a mental thing, almost. You know, and that was something Kevin Euclid kind of alluded to um, during yesterday's game against the White Sox, that, you know, baseball is kind of a... a real, it's a really big kind of mental game. You know, I wouldn't go as far as to say oh, it's like a 90% mental game, but, you know, it's it's really important. I think the Red Sox are, you know, at a point right now where, you know, it's critical, you know, that that mindset needs to remain positive. And, you know, it's, it's hard to do when you're losing games like this and you're not scoring runs. You know, I think that, I'll be honest, this is a worse way to go than having the pitching being bad. You know, it honestly is because it's like, the Red Sox have the bats. They have the bats. On paper, you know, you have five bats that at their best are, you know, pretty good or almost elite. You know, when you think about Story, Martinez, Bogart's endeavors, it's like you need these guys to hit. You need it because the season's going to slip away. You know, you don't want to look up and you're, you know, 20 games out of first place by the time the All-Star game hits. It's like, you need to figure it out. You know, they really have no excuses. Um, and whatever, if you want to blame the, the offseason for not getting enough guys, I guess that's fair. But guys have to hit. It's really as simple as that. So, you know, the last thing that I'll say is the team kind of needs a big hit. They need a big win. They need something to go their way. And, you know, if the Red Sox can't make it happen, you know, they might be forced to do something. You know, Bloom in the front office might be forced to make a trade. You know, whether it's trading Dahlbeck, trading someone like Kike Hernandez. Like, I think you have to do something because this season is going to get out of hand really quickly. Um, and I think when you take a look at what their schedule looks like, you know, it's not exactly great. You know, you have to go on the road. You have to play a Atlanta team. It's a really good pitching team. You know, Texas has obviously had some issues, but you're going to play Houston and Seattle at home. You know, it's like, you it really doesn't get any easier. So I think, you know, something needs to change. You know, something needs to change, and it needs to happen now. You know, you're sitting at 10 and 19 in last place. You know, you need, you need something to happen. You need something to go your way. So that's kind of it. For the Red Sox, I don't really have um, really any other notes for for the local team, but you just got to hit, you got to score runs. Uh, that's the name of the game. So uh, we're going to move on, talk a little bit about the Revolution. Really, you know, 
no Patriot news really at all, so didn't really make sense to cover them this week, but obviously if there are things that happened as, you know, off-season workouts I think are getting closer, um, we will keep you updated on that. So uh, the Revolution with a tie on Saturday night against the Columbus crew, the Revs uh, trailed one to nothing in this game at halftime. They were able to take the lead with a couple of late goals, um, and then Columbus obviously tying the game right before uh, stoppage time, so 2-2. You know, I think taking a look at this game just as an overall standpoint, you know, it's not the worst way to get a point, but, I mean, man, you would like to get, and you would have liked to get the extra two points um, with the win, and I think just with the way that the offense came together in the second half with a couple of goals um, from Dewan Jones and, and Adam Puxa, um, you know, Puxa just is, he's just, he's, he's elite in the air, you know, as a guy who can score with any type of header, and he scored a couple of beautiful goals um, in the last couple of games, so, you know, that's good to see that he's scoring, you know, Dewan Jones jumping up into the play um, and finishing off a goal, that was really nice to see, but, you know, defensively is kind of, again, causing the Revs a lot of problems, but I think the important thing is the offense is kind of back to being able to score goals. You know, they've scored multiple goals in five straight MLS games. So that's at least big because they think that you can score goals. You know, you give your team a chance to win. I mean, obviously it's not rocket science, but um, I think it's good to see that the offense is into a rhythm. You're getting goals from kind of all over the place. Um, so I think that that's great. You know, I think Gustavo Bo is closer to a return. Um, you know, it's funny. I was watching the um, highlights of the game Saturday, and uh, Tommy McNamara, late in the game, sent a shot off the crossbar. Let me just say, the Revs had a lot of amazing chances at the end of that game. Um, but he, you know, lets loose a shot, hits the crossbar, and I could have sworn that that was Gustavo Bo. And I was like, oh, wow. You know, is he back? I think that Bruce Arena was um, on 98.5 maybe last week. Um, and said that Gustavo's getting closer to a return. Obviously didn't play on Saturday, but they think that helps your offense even more if you can get a player of his caliber back on the pitch and, you know, in the right in the right fitness and be able to kind of give your offense another element that you can introduce and kind of make your offense even more dangerous with a player like him. So, you know, look kind of interesting to see how the next few games go. Uh, for the Revs and MLS play. Um, they do have the U.S. Open Cup, which starts this week, which is a competition with all um, professional U.S. soccer teams, if I'm not mistaken. Um, so the Revs will play Cincinnati on uh, Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. So I think that's the next game on their schedule, and then I'll have my MLS game next week, and we'll take a look at that in a second. But, you know, it was good to see the offense getting some goals. It was not good to see the defense have some breakdowns. You know, Matt Turner, I think, played a good game, and it's good to have him back. I think good to have some familiarity back, you know, with a back line that has had a lot of problems this year. Uh, so it's nice to see Matt back, but it's really not nice to see that the Revolution are continuing to have trouble defensively and, you know, kind of not able to mark up on certain guys. You know, just losing guys on, on goals and, you know, not playing good enough in transition, you know, and it's leading to goals. And 
it's allowing teams to kind of take liberties on the revolution that, you know, okay, this is a team that obviously they have a lot of talent offensively, but you can get them on counterattacks. You know, if you get the ball moving with pace, you can beat them. And I think that's the last thing you want to have happen if you're a revolution team. You know, you want to have a defense that is sound and is able to, you know, come up with stops on, on breaks. And you just have not gotten that for the majority of the season. You know, I think that you've had a couple goals where the Revs are not able to mark up quickly enough. And, you know, guys get loose for goals. And, you know, I don't keep to... I don't mean to keep harping on Omar Gonzalez, but, you know, it's clear when you see goals that are scored and he's on the field, more often than not, you know, he's flat-footed, he's slow to react, and it's just, I kind of just, I kind of wonder, you know, what the, what the thought process was bringing him back, and I, or bringing him to the reps, and I understand the championship experience, and I understand that he's an important kind of locker room guy, good to have around with you know, Bruce Arena, that he's, you know, one of Bruce's guys that he's played for his teams for a while. But, I mean, it's just, it's it's just kind of painfully obvious that he's kind of too slow. And I think that, I don't want to say, though, it's one guy that's responsible for why the defense is bad. Because I think, you know, Farrell and Kessler have maybe regressed a little bit. They've not really been as good as you would like. And I think, you know, losing someone like Tejan Buchanan, I mean, he's not really a defensive player but I think you know you lose someone with his from you lose someone with his athletic ability um, and it kind of just it kind of shows that the revolution you know at, at times are, are too slow and I think that you know that needs to change and it's like Matt Turner's only going to be here for so long you know he'll leave for Arsenal soon you know and probably within the next few months and you're not going to have a goalie that's going to be able to bail you out you know, and I, he kind of said this weeks ago when, you know, he was out with an injury that this is kind of what the team's going to look like if the defense can't come up with stops and you lose a goaltender that has the ability to bail you out. And if you don't have that, you know, you're kind of looking down the barrel of a disappointing season, you know, if things don't change. And I think I don't really expect that Gonzalez is going to be you know, sat or traded or anything, but it's just like the coaching staff has to see that. And they have to see that it's just, it's not really a good idea to be putting him on the field. And he came on the field as a sub and was kind of the reason why the crew were able to tie the game. If you saw that goal, it was painfully obvious that he's too slow to react and they get a tying goal in a game that you should have had. You know, this is a game that, for the first time all season, you feel like you've kind of gotten some momentum going. You've scored offensively. You've come back, come from behind to take the lead. You know, you're in a position to win two two games in a row, which you haven't done, I don't think, at all this season. You know, and you come away with a tie in a game that you should have won and you should, should have felt good about that game. Um, and it just is it's frustrating that, you know, the defense keeps letting them down and... They have guys on the field that really shouldn't be on the field. So, you know, it's going to be what it's going to be. But I think things have to change defensively um, if the Revs are going to want to be a playoff team. So be curious to see what the team looks like in the U.S. Open Cup, which is Wednesday at 7. Uh, the Revs' next MLS game is Sunday 
at 1.30 against the Atlanta F against Atlanta FC. That game is on the road. Revs have two road games upcoming against Atlanta and then Cincinnati, and then they will return home on May 28th against the Philadelphia Union. So that's what's kind of next up for the Revolution. I think we've kind of reached the end of talking about the uh, local teams. We'll get to more of the kind of national stuff, if you will. Uh, we're going to jump to the NBA, talk a little bit about the NBA playoffs. Um, there was a two. There were two game fours last night. Dallas and Phoenix. The Mavericks were able to even the series, as were the Sixers against the Heat. So, you know, very interesting, both of these series, the kind of the, the tenor has changed for the entire series, because I think you looked into it from the start for both of these series, you know, let's, you know, start with the Heat and Sixers, you know, the Heat coming in with kind of a couple dominant wins, the Sixers obviously were without Embiid, who is still recovering from the uh, facial fracture, and concussion and you know the heat kind of made easy work of the Sixers but you know I'll be honest the heat probably were lulled into a false sense of security that you know they were playing really well but you know when you take away one of the best players in the league from the Sixers you know like kind of of course that the heat are going to be able to win like you would expect that they would win you know you'd be disappointed if they lost you know you know one game in Miami but it's just interesting, you know, how much Embiid has changed the series. I mean, it's not really surprising necessarily, but I guess it is surprising that he's come back and been, you know, that much of an impactful player. You know, I really wasn't sure to, I wasn't sure what to expect when when he was coming back from the injury, but he's had a, a tremendous amount of, there's, you know, tremendous reason why the series is tied. But, you know, the Sixers won last night, won game four last night because of James Harden, you know, he, he was unbelievable. That's probably the best that I've seen him play as a member of the 76ers. And, you know, I'll be honest, I'd be concerned if I was a team having to play the Sixers with James Harden playing as well as he is. You know, he must have made four or five threes in a row at 31 points, Sixers even the series. And let me just tell you, that series is a lot more interesting now, you know, that the Sixers have kind of gotten some confidence and you know, you're going down to Miami in the heat, I think, for the first time in these playoffs are, you know, in a position where things are kind of getting away from them a little bit. I think, you know, the Heat, I think, have been the most consistent team in the NBA, really kind of outside of the Phoenix Suns. But, you know, this is a team that I don't think has really been put to the test yet in these playoffs. And I think Game 5 will tell you a lot about kind of the the kind of fortitude that the Heat have, but also what the Sixers have, you know, can they continue to play with that momentum, you know, can they steal a game in Miami, because they're going to have to do it, you know, they're going to win the series, they have to win a road game, so, you know, I'm very curious to see what that series looks like, and then obviously Phoenix dropping their second straight game to Dallas, uh, the Mavericks winning 111-101, you know, Luka's been tremendous, but it's kind of the other guys that have been really, really good for Dallas. You know, they came into the postseason, obviously, without Tim Hardaway Jr., but you have guys like Finney Smith and Jalen Brunson, 
Maxi Kleba, you know, all those guys are playing at a really high level. You know, Dinwiddie's playing really well. You know, he's not someone who is scoring the basketball a lot, but he's doing a lot of the little things. And, you know, they're playing with a lot of momentum, Dallas is. And I think, you know, Phoenix really needs to kind of regroup. And I think that, yeah, they probably have a decent complaint with, you know, Chris Paul fouling out of a game and, you know, not being available for the last couple minutes of that game. I think, you know, I'm just curious about how Phoenix responds. And I think they've been the best team in the NBA all season. And I think, you know, this is, again, a time that I think they're really going to be tested. But I will tell you, though, that I think the hard series that they played in the first round might actually be a blessing in disguise for them because I think it forced them to kind of experience some games that really mattered. And I think, you know, a, a series against a team that was a lot tougher than it really should have been, you know, maybe it kind of wakes them up to be like, okay, you know, this is how it's going to be. But let me tell you, Dallas is playing great basketball. You know, it's it's so interesting because I see so much of the Celtics in them. I see so much of a team that, like the Celtics, started really slowly you know, was at a poor record around New Year's, but turned it around, and they're playing unbelievable team basketball. You know, Luka's been great, but it's been the other guys that have been tremendous in knocking down shots that I think give this team a chance to be a dark horse contender when it comes to possibly getting to the NBA Finals. You know, I'm really high on that team. Um, and then the other series out west... Game four, Memphis-Golden State, that is tonight on TNT. Golden State obviously getting the win by a huge margin in game three. John Moran, John Moran obviously left the game with an injury. Don't believe that he is playing tonight, so that's really a, it's a huge game. Memphis, I think, needs to have this game. Um, but it's interesting because they've played pretty good basketball without John Morant. You know, they have been one of the most surprising teams this whole season, and they actually have a pretty good record when Jaw doesn't play. So very curious to see what they look like in this game for, you know, a game that they really need to have if they're going to have any chance of winning the series. You know, but Golden State's Golden State, and they're into an offensive rhythm, which I think is uh, really dangerous for the entire NBA. Um, you know, you have Curry and Thompson, you know what they can do, but Wiggins has been playing at a good level offensively, and Jordan Poole is... You know, like the third Splash Brother, he's been unbelievable in these playoffs. You know, a guy that's really fun to watch. So I'll be honest, I really, really like the Warriors out west. But I also really like Dallas, so I'm curious to see what this series brings for Game 4. Some other notes um, from around the NBA. I think that there are sources that are saying that uh, Nikola Jokic is expected to win his second straight MVP award. Um, you know, I think that me personally, if I was given a vote, I'd probably say Embiid, but, you know, Jokic is a tremendous player. You know, one of the, I think already, you know, is an all-time great. I think just the way that he plays the center position, he's kind of revolutionized the position. Um, but I also will say something doesn't feel right about, something doesn't feel right about that. And I say that because Denver obviously went through a lot of injuries. You know, they didn't have Porter Jr. or 
uh, Jamal Murray available to them at all this season. But my thing with the MVP is you should be able to elevate your team. And you should be able to elevate your team, you know, beyond kind of what your expectations are. And I think, you know, they lost in five games in the first round. You know, that's it's tough for me to give an MVP award to, to someone who couldn't elevate their team enough to win even two games in the first round. And obviously, you know, maybe it's more about regular season numbers, which it probably is, but it's just like something about that doesn't feel right to me that you should get a, give an MVP award to someone who was able to elevate their team and make their team a lot better. I mean, I think certainly you lose you lose Murray, who's probably your second best player, but I don't know, shouldn't you be able to win more than one game in a playoff series? I don't know, maybe it doesn't matter, but that's just kind of how I felt about that. But, you know, two MVPs in a row, that's no joke. You have to be a really, really good player to be able to do that. Um, the Sacramento Kings are hiring uh, Mike Brown as their new coach. Mike Brown, you might remember, was the uh, former coach of the Cavaliers that took the uh, LeBron-led Cavs to the finals in 2007. Uh, Kyle Lowry apparently re-injured his hamstring last night. So the uh, status for game five is a little, little iffy for him. So curious to see what happens with him so now we're going to move on to the NHL take a look at the playoffs but first there are a couple of notes that I do want to get to Barry Trotz uh, fired by the Islanders after this season I'll be honest I'm a little surprised by that by that decision but you know the Islanders certainly had pretty high expectations coming into the season you know making the Eastern Conference final two years in a row and then missing the playoffs this year you know, I think that maybe it's fair, but I just thought that, you know, it's one season. But then again, you know, when you have expectations that high and you don't miss the, and you don't make the playoffs, you know, something kind of maybe needs to be changed. So I think that, you know, I kind of feel a little conflicted on that. Um, but just some other news, there are a couple players that could be back for, uh, or Darcy Kemper could play game four for the Avalanche. He was hurt in game two, I believe, or game three. So he might be able to play the next game. Um, and then the NHL award finalists are going to be named starting today. So the uh, Norris Trophy finalists were announced today. That's the uh, award that goes to the best defenseman. So the honorees were Victor Hedman from the Lightning, uh, Kale McCarr from the Avalanche and Roman Yossi from the Predators. And I'll be honest, I hate to be one of those people, but, you know, Yossi almost had 100 points. You can't not give it to him. But I will just say, on the other hand, I don't really like that the Norris Trophy has now become a kind of an award of who has the most points for defensemen, because that's not really right. You know, I think, like, you give it to someone who is the best defenseman, not the person that has the most points. You know, it's kind of what it's developed into. Um, you know, I do think Yossi should win because I think he's the best all-around defenseman in the league. But it's just like it should be more. It should be more than just scoring points. Um, is kind of just my point. So be curious to see who wins that. I mean, I really think it's Makar or Yossi. You know, Hedman's a guy that 
he's kind of just there because, you know, he is really good, but it's like he is really good every season. Um, I mean, I don't know if he's the best defenseman, but, you know, I really kind of don't know who's going to win between uh, Yossi and Makar. It's kind of a toss-up um, at that point. So now we're going to take a look at some of the other series um, in the Eastern Conference. The, or, well, actually, we can take take a look at the games yesterday. So obviously, Bruins tied the series. Uh, the St. Louis Blues were able to even the series with the Minnesota Wild with a 5-2 win yesterday. Uh, the Blues getting a home win. Jordan Bennington in net for that game. It was kind of an interesting decision, but uh, the Blues get the win, and Bennington gets his first postseason win since uh, Game 7 in 2019, which is uh, kind of hard for me to believe, but he's had a really bad run of postseason play recently, so a uh, pretty ballsy move by Craig Berube, but it works off, or pays off, and the Blues evened this series with Minnesota, so this is a series that I had going seven, you know, from the moment that I knew that both of these teams were playing each other in the playoffs. Um <laughs> I just yeah I can't see it going fewer than six fewer than six games, or fewer than seven I should say. So excited to see what remains with that series. Uh, Tampa Bay evening the series with Toronto yesterday, seven to three the final score. Tampa Bay scored the first five goals of the game and then was able to hang on in the third period with a couple of empty netters. So again I think this series is also going seven, but I had that at the beginning of the series. So. You know, it's kind of just a question of can Toronto have kind of the the ability to kind of mentally jump over the hump? Because I think that's the biggest thing with them. I don't think it's a, a matter of talent or skill or, or anything. You know, I am a little worried about Jack Campbell, but, you know, that's a team where kind of it's mental more than anything else. So, you know, we'll just be able, we'll just kind of see what they're made of. Um, game five uh, will be Tuesday night. But yeah, I can't see this game, I can't see the series going any further or any fewer than seven games. Um, the LA Kings evening the series with the Boilers with a 4-0 win late last night. I'm pretty surprised at that outcome. You know, the Oilers kind of, in my opinion, kind of needed to have that game because now the Kings kind of know that they can play against the Oilers. You know, the, the Oilers had two straight wins where they played really, really well offensively and you know, you post a goose egg in the next game. I thought Jonathan Quick was pretty good for the Kings, but, you know, Edmonton's better than the Kings. And they really, like, they should be able to win the series. I mean, I had the series going six, but it's like, I don't feel super confident about them right now with the way that they played yesterday. Um, so the Kings even the series. So all four games, or all four teams that won yesterday, evened their series. So we have game fours on tap for tonight. The uh, Panthers and the Capitals go at it in Game 4. The Capitals lead the series two games to one after a 6-1 win in Game 3. And, you know, Sean and I talked about this last week. You know, uh, Florida is a team that I think maybe we're a little bit concerned about with the way that uh, Washington has been able to play recently with, you know, the physicality and the goal scoring and goaltending that honestly has stood up. So... You know, Florida needs this game. They absolutely need this game. Um, I really think they cannot afford to go down 3-1. Um, but it's interesting. You know, Washington has kind of frustrated Florida a little bit with how physical they're playing and, you know, selling out defensively. So, um, yeah, I mean, you could see 
the President's Trophy winners go down in the first round. I really think that that's, that that's possible. I think the thing for Florida is try to take advantage of that goaltending that I think has played better than better than it is. But I think, you know, Florida is the highest scoring team in the league for a reason. So um, look for them to have a big game tonight. But if they don't win, uh, I think the series is over. Um, the Rangers and Pittsburgh. This has been a pretty interesting back and forth series. You know, no team has really been able to establish a, a consistent way of playing. So, you know, Pittsburgh won game three. The Rangers had a great comeback in that game. You know, Shesterkin gets pulled. So, I think curious to see how the Rangers respond um, in game four. Um, I think it's been a pretty close series that I think neither team has really been able to find a rhythm. So, you know, even if Pittsburgh wins this game, I don't think the Rangers are necessarily out of it. So, um, you know, Louis Domingue, obviously the, the backup to the backup has kind of been uh, the story in this series. I'm curious about whether Tristan Jari might be returning for Pittsburgh, but pretty interesting the uh, pretty the story about Deming who was the backup in game one came into the third the second overtime and it was not expecting to play so you know that's always those stories are always really funny and uh, and interesting so you know curious to see what happens in this series uh, Colorado and Nashville the avalanche can go for the sweep tonight in game four they lead the series three games to none. You know, Nashville kind of out of their depth without uh, UC Saros. Um, so I think Colorado finishes them off tonight. You know, Nashville had their opportunity in game two to steal a game, but McCarr obviously scored the overtime winner. So, yeah, I think Nashville's season uh, might be over tonight. Um, and then the other kind of, this is the most surprising series. The Stars lead the Flames two games to one after stealing game two and then winning game three, Joe Pavelski. Just the, the ageless wonder just took over in game three. And uh, they might have Calgary on the ropes here, which is not great for me because I had the Flames going and going to and winning the Stanley Cup. So I really hope it doesn't turn out that way. But hey, you know what? Credit to Dallas. They found a way to get to the playoffs. And sometimes that's all that's all you need. And I think there's been plenty of precedent where you know, a team kind of barely squeaks into the playoffs, but then goes on a run. So, you know, this is a team that's hot. You know, Jake Ottinger is hot. They have really hot goaltending right now. So, you know, and you have guys that are scoring up and down the lineup. So, you know, really huge opportunity for Dallas to take a strangle stranglehold of that series. Calgary uh, desperately needs some secondary scoring if they're going to win this series. So, I'd be curious to see if that happens. Um, so I think that that's probably it for talking about the NHL. We're going to talk a little bit about the NFL. You know, not too many notes here. Uh, just kind of taking a look at it. But I think a couple teams are starting their off-season workouts. I think that um, there are kind of some leaks out about um, certain games for the NFL that are coming up. Um, the schedule actually is uh, going to be released on Thursday, I'm pretty sure. So that's kind of something to keep an eye on. But I think that there's already news that Tennessee and Buffalo, Minnesota, Philadelphia uh, will play in a week two Monday Night Football doubleheader. So that is kind of something to keep your eye on. The uh, Lions giving a or giving Aiden Hutchinson 
his rookie deal worth up to $35.7 million. Um, and that's kind of, you know, all, all we kind of got for um, the NFL at the moment. Apparently, the Seahawks have discussed a return with K.J. Wright. Um, and the Patriots um, outside linebacker Kyle Van Noy signing a deal with the Chargers, which I think surprised some people, but I think it does tell you that the Patriots are kind of moving into emphasizing youth at linebacker, which I think is really important. So that's just, that's kind of it for the NFL. You know, obviously not a whole lot going on there. Um, so now we'll take a look at Major League Baseball. Uh, just some notes here. The Mets releasing Robinson Cano as they uh, owe the second baseman about $45 million, which is pretty crazy. Uh, the um, umpire in the Red Sox-White Sox game yesterday, uh, Ron Culpa, was hit by, or hit in the mask by a foul ball, so he had to leave the game. Um, now we'll take a look at some standings here. The Red Sox are, you know, the Lily Red Sox are in last place, a game and a half um, behind Baltimore for fourth place. Uh, the Yankees lead the East at 19-8. and eight. They've gotten off to a really good start this season. Um, after taking two out of three from the Red Sox to open the season, so they're off to a good start. Uh, the Twins are in first place in the Central, although the White Sox are kind of breathing down their neck a little bit. They've uh, kind of caught their tempo a little bit at these, a little bit as they have won six in a row and seven out of ten. Uh, the Angels lead the West at 19 and 11, half game ahead of the Astros. In the National League, the New York Mets sit at 20-10. and 10. They've been off to a really good start. You know, I think the rest of that division has had a tough time out of the gate. So part of the reason why the Mets have been able to get off to a good start, 20-10, uh, and 10, six games in first place. The Milwaukee Brewers in first place in the Central, two and a half games up on the Cardinals. It's been a good start to the year for the Brewers. And then the Dodgers are in first place, a game and a half up on the Padres in the West. So I think that will probably, uh, I think I'll probably do it for me this week as I think we have um, a, a uh, Celtics themed guest this week who will talk about the uh, upcoming games in the Celtics series. You know, I think we'll probably record later this week, so hopefully the series is still going on, but if not, we'll probably talk about the offseason, but it'll be another kind of a playoff update as we did a Bruins one last week. I think we'll do a Celtics one this week, so uh, be sure to keep your eye out, your eyes peeled for that later this week, so we'll be with you on Friday, so everyone enjoy um, the rest of your week. You know, go Bruins, go Celtics. Hopefully uh, things turn out pretty well for them. But uh, as always, you can follow the socials for uh, the latest updates on Twitter and Facebook. Um, you can listen to us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All right, everyone, have a good rest of your week.